Good morning again. Uh, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to First uh, Peter. Uh, our sermon text for this morning will be First Peter chapter three, verses eighteen through twenty-two. Before we read that together, let's pray together. Father, we come before you again. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not abandoned us or left us to our own thoughts, but you have given us your word that we might know you, that we might understand your will for our lives, that we might understand uh, the gospel, uh, that we might understand the work of Jesus and what he has done on our behalf and uh, that we might understand the grace that is ours in him and through the cross. And Father, we pray that you would come and be with us now, that you would soften hearts and minds, that you would give us uh, understanding and insight into your word, and that you would use it to shape us and mold us and uh, refashion us after the image of your son, Jesus. Uh, Father, pour out your spirit to those ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning with verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. For a few months now, we have been talking about suffering. First Peter is a letter written to Christians who were suffering, and they were Christians in various towns and cities throughout Asia Minor. Uh, some uh, surely had it worse than others. For many, it was a matter of social rejection. Uh, for some servants, at least, it sounds like uh, there was physical abuse involved as well. And they suffered because uh, they didn't fit in. Uh, they were strangers and exiles, Peter calls them. This world was not their home, and they were looked at funny by the inhabitants of this age. And I wonder, uh, even from the start, and as we've been talking about this for a few weeks, can you relate to that? Uh, do you sometimes look around and feel like you don't fit in? Have you ever been looked at funny because of your commitment to Jesus? Well, we have a few options when that happens, of course. Uh, Christians live in the world, but we're not a part of the world. Scripture says we cannot go along with the world's agenda. Rather, we follow Jesus as Lord. And this tends to bring uh, social rejection and sometimes even greater forms of persecution, which means we have two options. The first is we keep going. Uh, we keep going. We keep uh, pursuing Jesus. We keep seeking to obey Him and then we suffer whatever consequences may come. We endure rejection for Christ's sake, as Peter will put it later in his letter. Or uh, we give up. We give up and we give in and we go along to get along. It's not always easy to keep going. 
And Peter recognizes that. That's why he says in, in verse 17, it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He's saying, don't forget that, that this is better than the alternative. That whatever struggles you may face, there's something good that God is doing in and through this. And Peter has been exhorting us week after week to keep going, to not give up, to persevere. And in our text this morning, we find three reasons to keep going. And those three reasons you can find uh, on the outline in the back of your bulletin if you want to follow along there. The three reasons to keep going that Peter gives us this morning are, are this. One, God is patient. And two, God has provided. And three, Christ is victorious. Now, I, I should say before we jump into that, that the, the text in front of us is actually notoriously difficult to understand. Uh, Martin Luther, no less than Martin Luther, said, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. <laughs> About verse 19, one commentator said, uh, this verse is one of the shorter, but surely the most problematic in this letter, if not in the New Testament canon as a whole. <laughs> Oh boy. Uh, in light of that, uh, there are two dangers here. Two dangers, I think. The first is being too confident in our understanding of these verses, particularly verse 19. But the other danger is this, and it's maybe, the, maybe the, the worst danger. Sometimes when we get to difficult passages, we treat them like a puzzle to be solved rather than a declaration to be heeded. Uh, that is, it's easy for us, and, and maybe even fun, to, to pick apart this passage, but in so doing, to miss Peter's point. And whatever verse 19 means, I actually think uh, Peter's point in the passage as a whole is clear. Peter's point is, whatever troubles you may face, knowing that Christ faced troubles and rose victorious, assures us that we too, who belong to him, will come through victorious as well. And so Peter's point is that, that the Christ who, who died also rose, and the Christ who rose also ascended to the right hand of the Father, verse 22, and every power against him has now been placed under his feet. Christ has won. And so whatever trials you face, he can and will bring you through as you look to him. Now that said, I do nevertheless want to start out <laughs> laying out the, the three main views of verse 19. And I want to do that to start, in part, uh, so that we can move into the passage and jump into what the passage is really saying. Uh, so Peter says, uh, in verses 18 and 19, he says at some point that Christ, in the Spirit, verse 18, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, verse 19. And the questions uh, abound about this verse. Uh, what does it mean that Jesus was in the Spirit? Uh, when did he uh, do that? When did he go and proclaim uh, to the spirits in prison? Who are the spirits who are in prison? And just what exactly did he proclaim? Every one of those questions is, is debated, and uh, there are multiple answers to each of them. And I just want to give you the three sort of broad views of what uh, the possibilities are. Uh, number one is some believe uh, that a after his death, but before his resurrection, 
Jesus descended into hell and proclaimed the gospel to those who died prior to Noah's day. Uh, verse 20 says, these spirits did not obey in the days of Noah. So this view assumes that these were those who disobeyed prior to the flood. These spirits are those who disobeyed prior to the flood. Uh, the word for proclaim uh, is often used of proclaiming the gospel, and so this seems to make sense, right? Christ uh, went, proclaimed to these uh, deceased people. Uh, now, one problem with this understanding of verse uh, 19 is actually verse 18, because in verse 18, we're told that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which, verse, t verse 19, he went and proclaimed. And so whatever in the flesh and in the spirit mean, it seems clear that the one time Jesus wasn't quote, in the spirit, was when he was dead. Uh, the spirit came and gave him life. And so just, it, it seems like his being in the spirit happened at his resurrection, but was not true uh, of his death. Again, whatever that means. And so another view came up that was uh, popularized, at least in part, by Augustine, that Christ preached through the spirit in the days of Noah, to those who are now in prison or in hell. Uh, this view teaches that Christ was preaching through Noah in Noah's day. Uh, the advantage of this view is it builds on something Peter said earlier in the letter, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Peter said that the Spirit of Christ was speaking through the prophets. So this would be just one example of that, the Spirit of Christ speaking through Noah. Uh, it has the additional advantage that in uh, 2 Peter 2, verse 5, Peter calls Noah a herald or a preacher of righteousness. And so here, Peter says, Jesus went and proclaimed or preached, could be translated, uh, to the spirits in prison in the days of Noah. And there, Peter says, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And so, uh, so this uh, pulls those two sections of Scripture together and, and would seem to make good sense out of it. Two problems, though, with, with really both of these first two views uh, are, are these. One, the word spirits here rarely refers to human spirits in Scripture. More often than not, the word refers to either the Holy Spirit or to angelic powers, so spiritual beings, or specifically to demons, unclean spirits. The second problem is the word prison, as far as I can tell, is never used for uh, dead human beings. It's never used for a place where dead, deceased human beings go. It is used for living human beings, right? People being thrown into prison or spiritual beings, uh, demons and even Satan, uh, but never for human beings. And so there's a third view then. Uh, this third view says that after Jesus was put to death in the flesh, he was made alive by the Spirit. And in that Spirit, at that time, he went and proclaimed his victory to the unclean spirits who are in prison. Now, as odd as this might sound to us, one advantage of this view is that other passages of Scripture talk about spirits being held in prison prior to the final judgment. So in, in 2 Peter 2, verse 4, which we read earlier, for example, it says that God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So certain spirits who rebelled, God is keeping them for the day of judgment. Revelation 20 actually uses the word prison itself to talk about Satan 
being put into and at some point taken out of prison. And so another, one advantage of this view is actually that the New Testament does talk about spirits being held captive in prison, uh, rebellious spirits. Another advantage of this view is that uh, verse 22 has the same word, a common word, for he went. Verse 19 talks about he went, Christ went. Um, But in verse 22, it it talks about his going, he, he went, into heaven. And what happened in verse 22 when Jesus went into heaven? Angels and authorities and powers were subjected to him. That is, at Christ's ascension, um, Christ's ascension meant his victory over spiritual powers. And so, uh, recognizing how difficult this passage is and, and how loosely, again, we need to hold our understanding, it's actually, it's this final view that I would, uh, that I'm going to assume is the right one as we look at these three points. That is, that after Christ rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit, he ascended into heaven and there proclaimed his victory over rebellious spiritual beings who, as Peter says elsewhere, are being kept in chains awaiting final judgment. You may remember at one point in the Gospels, Jesus was about to cast a legion of demons out of a possessed man. It's Matthew 8, 29. And the demons cried out, what, are, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you, come to, have you come here to torment us before the time? The demons knew that their time was short and that a time was soon coming when they would all be subjected to him. Well, that time, at least in part, has come in the resurrection where all uh, powers, angels, demons, authorities have been subjected to Christ. Okay, so uh, with all that said, let's look at our first point. One, God is patient. Whenever we uh, suffer, especially when that suffer is ongoing, we tend to ask, why and how long? When is this going to end? Or if we're a bit more theological and at the same time losing patience, we might say, God, when are you going to put an end to this? Or even, God, why haven't you put an end to this? Well, Peter tells us that God is being patient. Peter says, Christ proclaimed his victory to the unclean spirits who had disobeyed in the days of Noah. And then Peter slips in in verse 20, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, how long did God's patience wait in the days of Noah? Actually, Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 tells us, God says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Now, some take that to be God putting a cap on the length of man's life, but another very common understanding is that's how long God gave man before he flooded the earth. That from that point, God said, Okay, in 120 years, I'm going to bring the flood. So how long was God's patience? Well, there at least, in the days of Noah, it was 120 years. God waited to bring judgment on the earth. Well, why did God wait so long? Again, the book of 2 Peter actually helps us out here. There, Peter is speaking about God's delay of the final judgment. And he says this in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So why does God wait? 
I mean, the world is, is broken. God's people suffer. Atrocities happen. Why doesn't God step in and make things right now? Well, Peter tells us in 2 Peter, because God is patient. He is giving room for repentance. What do we do with that? Right? What, do we, what do we do with God's patience? If you are, are God's people, what you do is persevere. Your prolonged trials are actually because of God's patience and kindness. He is giving room for repentance. If you are not a part of God's people, if you do not belong to Jesus, if you do not believe in him, in his death for sin, and his victorious resurrection, what you need to do is repent. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, do, not presume, or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The fact that God does not judge us right now is his kindness and forbearance and, repent, and, and patience. God's kindness is meant to turn us away from sin and back to the one who is kind and good and just. And so if you belong to Jesus, if you undergo trials, right, persevere, keep going. Your prolonged trials are actually because of God's kindness and patience. They just point you to the character of your father. But they won't last forever. Judgment will come. And so in the meantime, we keep going. We keep pursuing Jesus. The second reason to keep going is that God has provided. What would you say is your biggest problem today? Uh, what is your, your biggest struggle this week? What is the greatest challenge in life that you must overcome? Well, Scripture would tell us that your greatest problem and mine is this that the whole world is under judgment because of sin. And this is personal in that it involves each one of us, but it's also universal in that it's the whole world that is ready to be judged. The Apostle Paul calls this time in which we live the present evil age. It's evil because it's an age of sin and, and because it's an age of suffering. And Jesus gave himself, Paul says, to, to deliver us from the present evil age. So our biggest problem is actually that we are a part of a world that is in rebellion against God and facing judgment. But Jesus came to deliver us from that world and its judgment. And here's how Peter puts it. Uh, first look at verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ suffered for sins. He did that once, once because that was enough. Peter refers here to the cross. Jesus suffered on the cross, not for his own sins, because he had none. He was the righteous one, but he suffered in our place, the righteous for the unrighteous. And Peter speaks here of what we call the, the substitutionary atonement, that, that Jesus on the cross became our substitute. He took our place and it, that he suffered in our place in order that he might bring us to God. That is, reconcile us to our Father. And in that way, we are brought out of the world, meaning we are freed from the judgment that is to come. And so Peter talks about Noah. He talks about Noah and the ark, that in, in Noah's day, wickedness was great upon the earth, Scripture says, uh, but God was patient 
God was patient, but judgment was coming. God, God could have, of course, he could have wiped out the whole human race. He could have just been done with it all. But Noah, uh, Genesis tells us, found grace in the eyes of God. God, out of his mercy, decided to save some, in this case, Noah and his family. What Peter says is that they were saved through water. Now, this is one of those few places where I think uh, the NIV and the King James Version get it right, and the ESV and the New American Standard Bible get it wrong. The NIV says uh, that they were saved through water, and the King James says that they were saved by water. The message, just to cover all the bases, by the way, says they were saved from the water by the water. Uh, <laughs> which actually isn't so bad. Uh, but Peter's point is that the water saves them. Now you might think, oh, that doesn't make any sense, the ark saved them from the water. The water is clearly a symbol uh, and an instrument of judgment there in the flood. And yet it's also the water that sets Noah and his family apart from the wicked people of his day. The water saved them from the wicked age in which they lived. Now, if that sounds like an odd way of talking, uh, think about Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, which ends with these words in Acts 2.40, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Remember, the whole letter of Peter is about where we belong. Is this world our home? Do we fit in with those around us? Or are we strangers and exiles on earth? Are you going to just to go along to get along, or are you willing to receive reproach for the name of Christ? In Noah's day, God provided a way of escape, a way of escape from the wicked generation of Noah's day and from the judgment that was coming upon it through the very waters of judgment themselves. Now, what does Peter say to us about this? Look at verse 21. Verse 21 says, Baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. Uh, what, what in the world does Peter mean when he says that baptism now saves you? Well, first, notice, uh, he says baptism, which corresponds to this. Uh, that is, baptism is somehow uh, similar to the floodwaters of Noah's day. Both save us out of our present generation and from the judgment that is coming. One commentator says this about verse 21, As the flood separated Noah and his family from the wicked world of their day, so baptism separates believers from the evil world of our day. Baptism marks us off as belonging to a different people, belonging to the people of God. But second, Peter clarifies what he means by this in two ways, important clarifications. First, he says, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Now, this could actually mean two things. Peter could be saying, uh, not as a removal of the impurity of the flesh, meant actually as a reference to circumcision. Uh, Peter could be contrasting circumcision with baptism. Circumcision outwardly removed, uh, the way it was viewed at least, was circumcision out outwardly removed the impurity of the flesh. And so Peter would be saying, that kind of outward removal is not enough. Or Peter could be saying, as, as the translators of the ESV take it, uh, not as baptism removes dirt from your body, 
right? Not as the water removes dirt from your body. And again, the point would, would really be the outward ceremony is not enough. Going through the motion either of circumcision or of baptism in and of themselves is insufficient. When Peter says baptism saves you, he does not mean, he clarifies, merely by the outward ceremony. But he adds, as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by the act of baptism, you are, are marked off from the world and, and brought into the church. But when Peter says, baptism now saves you, and not merely the removal of dirt, but an appeal to God, he, he means this, baptism saves, okay, but not, as, not baptism as an empty sign, but baptism as it is accompanied by an appeal to God to cleanse our conscience. See, while baptism is an outward sign and does truly mark one off as belonging to God, that formal or ritual act is meant to go somewhere in the life of God's people. The outward sign is not an end in itself, just as a wedding ring is not an end in itself. It's an entrance into the life of marriage, as baptism is an entrance into the life of faith. And so whether you're baptized as a, as a baby or whether you're baptized on your deathbed, by the sign of baptism, you are marked off for God. But the sign of baptism, like the word of the gospel, is not meant to be merely received or merely heard, but believed we should remember our baptisms as the promise of God to us and so appeal to that promise that God might cleanse our hearts by faith. How do we receive that good conscience? How do we receive that cleansed heart? The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9.14, The blood of Christ, who through the Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So, baptism now saves, Peter says, not as an empty ritual, but as we respond to our baptism, seeking the cleansing work of God in our hearts. Again, the writer of Hebrews pulls the sign and the reality together when he says in Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And so you have the sign the outward baptism, and the reality, the sprinkling clean of the heart. So despite suffering, don't give in. Keep going. God is being patient, giving sinful men and women an opportunity to repent. And God has provided a way of escape. Peter says, through the waters of baptism, but not as an empty ritual, but as we respond to that appealing to God to purify our conscience by faith. So keep going. God is patient. God is provided. And third, Christ is victorious. Now, sometimes you watch movies and there is a point in which the heroes realize they can't win. And uh, sometimes they say things like this, I, I know I can't win, but I'm going to die trying. And against all odds and without any hope of victory, they push through. And of course, that makes for a really exciting movie. But I'm not so sure it's where we live day to day. I mean, could you, would you persevere in the Christian life if I stood up here and said, in the end, you might go to hell. God may reject you. You might be judged along with the rest of the world. Your victory is not sure, but, but go give it your all and see what happens. 
Some of you, maybe consciences bearing down on you with guilt, would strive to live the Christian life seeking to do everything possible in the hopes that maybe possibly God might actually save you. But some of you would just give up and go home. And I really don't know which category I would be in. Thankfully, that's not what I'm going to say. Thankfully, that's not the message of Scripture. The message of Scripture is that Christ is victorious. And in Christ's victory, we find victory. Notice Peter begins and ends here with the victory of Jesus. Again, verses 18 and 19, uh, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Christ suffered for sin, that he might bring us to God. In the end, the goal of his suffering is that we would have access to the Father. Now, the word might there does not mean that that access to the Father is uncertain. Peter's not saying, yeah, it might happen, but it might not. But he's saying that this is the end of Christ's work, that we might truly have access to the Father. How did that happen? Well, Christ was put to death in the flesh. That is, in the present age, with all of its limits and powers, but he was made alive in the Spirit, or by the power of the Spirit of God. When Jesus rose, he rose to a new way of living, no longer limited by the powers of this age, but empowered and enlivened by the Spirit of God. And in that Spirit, Christ went and proclaimed this victory to the evil spirits in prison. And those spirits, by the way, would be in prison uh, up in heaven. Uh, again, we conceive of, of uh, the dead, uh, evil spirits it would be down there somewhere in hell, and God is up in heaven. But the Jewish people had a much more complex understanding of heaven than we often do. You know, Paul talks about being taken up to the third heaven in 2 Corinthians uh, 12, 2. Uh, and we think, third heaven? How many heavens are there? Um, but uh, Christ, being made alive by the Spirit, goes up into heaven, where he proclaims his victory over the evil spirits. Where in verse 22, having gone into heaven, he sits at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers being subjected to him. And this is mentioned multiple places in Scripture. In Ephesians 1, uh, Paul says, Christ was raised and seated at God's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. These powers are not benevolent powers, but devilish ones. As Paul says near the end of Ephesians, in Ephesians 6, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so what is Peter's point? Peter's point is this, that through Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension, he has gained victory over all evil spiritual powers. This is what Paul says in Colossians 2.15, that God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, that is, in Christ, or possibly even in the cross. And the real secret to spiritual warfare, and so the real secret to enduring social rejection, suffering, and persecution, is knowing that Christ has already won. Whatever skirmishes we might face in the moment, the victory is secure because Christ has won. And so you might say, but my, my suffering is so extreme. Well, Scripture tells us every evil power is under Jesus' feet. He's in control. My suffering is so extended, it just never seems to end. Well, the days of evil are numbered because Jesus is reigning. 
and he will put an end to all evil and suffering on the last day. You might think, I don't think I can win. I don't think I can persevere any longer. Christ has already won. Uh, The battle is secure in him. Our job is simply to keep clinging to Jesus, to know that whatever we face, our shepherd will be with us in the valley, to know that the, the worst the world can do to us, of course, is put us to death in the flesh. And that happened to Christ, but it did not defeat him because he was made alive by the Spirit, which is our hope as well. Our Savior, our Lord, was dead and is alive. He who raised Christ from the dead will give life to our mortal bodies on the last day. Don't give up. Keep going. God is faithful. His promises are sure. Christ is faithful. He will not abandon you, but he has risen from the dead and is far above all rule and authority and power. The Spirit is faithful, and he will give you life now and on the last day, the resurrection. And so our present suffering is real. Of course, it's real. It's hard. It's difficult. Sometimes it takes the form of of social rejection for Christ's sake. Sometimes it's the inexplicable roar of Satan seeking to devour us. Sometimes it's just an aspect of living in the present evil age. Whatever the case, our suffering is real, but it's not ultimate. Christ has overcome. And through him and by faith in him, we too will overcome. God in his kindness is being patient with us, giving us time to turn to him through Christ. He has provided the way of of escape through the waters of baptism and the appeal of faith. Christ is already victorious. He has won the battle, which means our victory in him is secure. Keep going. Don't give up. Persevere, resting in the victory of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you did not abandon Jesus to the grave, but you raised him from the dead. You seated him at your right hand, far above all rule and authority and power. And we know that he is now king of heaven and earth. All things are placed under his feet. Even now, he is subduing those enemies. And on the last day, he will be seen by all as the victorious king. And no enemy that stands against him will remain. And we thank you for that, Father, because we know that in his victory, we find victory. Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus, which cleanses us from sin and enables us to approach you. Even now, we come to you through his blood, and we pray in his name. Amen.